Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. Kate Wagner will talk about McMansions, a topic she writes about with frequency, intelligence, and wit. And towards the bottom of the hour, Donna Minkowitz will talk about her visit to a conference of genteel Nazis. First, architectural excess. Kate Wagner writes the blog McMansion Hell, which mixes prose analysis with annotated photographs of those residential abominations. As she says in the About page of the site, by alternating comedy-oriented takedowns of individual houses with weekly informative essays about architecture, urbanism, sociology, and design, McMansion Hell hopes to open readers' eyes to the world around them and inspire them to make it a better one. Like many of the best things in life, it's often quite funny, but also quite serious. Giant, ugly houses are certainly crimes against beauty, but they also emerge from a society where ostentation and social isolation blend into a toxic cocktail. Wagner's academic background is in music and acoustics. She's currently a grad student in the latter subject at Johns Hopkins, but she's long been interested in architecture. She informs me that she's heard way too many jokes about frozen music, Goethe's definition of architecture, so I won't make one. She's turned that interest into a marvelous site of aesthetic and social criticism. A few months ago, she faced a legal challenge from Zillow, which didn't like her using its pictures of ugly houses, but she triumphed over that threat and even got some good publicity out of it. It's a challenge to do justice to this topic without pictures, but here we go. Kate Wagner. McMansions, where and when did this style get started? So I traced the McMansion back to the mid-1970s. From my understanding and my research, the McMansion sort of evolved out of the, the split level. That's sort of well actually it's it's genes go back to the bungalow from the the craftsman bungalow from the nineteen you know tens, twenties, and thirties, which was the first uh home type to feature an open floor plan. The bungalow as a plan type is uh is a more wide plan type because the the lots at that time were larger than lots of the previous generation of streetcar suburbs. And so that widening of the lot size was really uh, instrumental into in the development of the McMansion uh, through that initial open floor plan up into the time where people could afford to buy uh, or to build larger houses, starting with the ranch, which was, of course, extremely long um, and had extremely wide lots and the split level, which was, of course, building on on the ranch. And then there was a sort of transitionary period between the split level and the sort of first generations of McMansions. But those houses started to explore concepts like uh, huge cathedral ceilings in different rooms, and which was afforded to them by the shape of the roof lines, and really kind of got people associated with you know having larger interior spaces. And so that style really led to a kind of uh, transition between sort of more horizontal space and more vertical uh, interior spaces. And the the first sort of generation of Bonafide McMansions came about in around the 1980s. The 1984, I guess I would say, is probably the year where you started to see them in past uh, wealthy areas outside of cities and more in rural areas. Uh, most McMansions are found outside of cities in wealthier suburbs. Okay, so what makes a house a McMansion? You've got a real definition. It's not just some big ass house, right? People have been kind of trying to quantify what makes a house a McMansion for quite a bit. Actually, there was a little bit of academic research on this right after the recession around 2009 or at the beginning of the recession. Personally, I think that a McMansion is really simply defined. It's a, it's an oversized house. My personal threshold can be is above 3000 square feet, uh, which is well above the national average. It's a house that is poorly constructed. It's a house that has 
inconsistent or uh, poorly thought out design. The, the kind of composition of the house is not really architecturally sound or there's lots of sort of anachronisms between stylistic movements. There's a chaotic layout. The, the realization on the exterior of the house is often a result of these kinds of convoluted plans that can only be realized. That's why the roof lines are so bizarre, because if you have cathedral ceilings in every room on the second floor, you're going to end up with some strange roof lines. The house is essentially designed from the inside out. It's a sign of a kind of bigger part of what a McMansion is, which is really, in my experience, it's kind of the hyper commodification of one's living situation. I mean, these houses are designed to buy, to be bought and sold essentially at the height of the bubble. And even past the bubble, they, they retain these important signifiers of wealth. And when you're designing a house based off of what it's going to sell for, and, and it just becomes kind of an escalating game of, of assets. You have to have this, 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 and this, or else your house is considered subpar to other houses. And when you have to accumulate so many individual items or so many in, individual rooms or types of rooms or any kind of thing that, that will make that number go up, 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 you're going to end up with an extremely convoluted house form, especially if you're not dealing with an experienced architect. Who designs these things? Are there architects involved or builders or what's the process? Some McMansions are designed by architects that work for large building companies like, you know, the Toll Brothers, say, or Ryan Homes or whatever. Some of them are designed by, are custom built by local builders. Uh, probably a local builder will have a collection of plans what will happen usually is that this builder will sit down with the homeowner who will who will then add their own special touch and decide exactly what they want in the house. And that kind of process ends up morphing what may start out as a relatively reasonable plan, uh, turning being executed in something that's completely unreasonable. The resulting house that is built is often uh, kind of strange looking, especially the roof line and especially the way that the rooms are kind of uh, splayed out in such a haphazard way. It's really kind of to alleviate the structural burden of, of, of accommodating so much desired space. And who lives in these houses? What kinds of people? Is there some sort of class or subclass that, uh, that is drawn to them? Most of the people who live in McMansions are members of the managerial class, mostly uh, white-collar workers in some kind of management positions, or people like lawyers, doctors. Some, But what's so funny is most of the, the houses that people send me saying, I hate this house, et cetera, et cetera, are houses that are like 11,000 square feet and like homes of the ultra wealthy, like the, the ultra elite. Those houses are, are extremely tacky and I would say qualify for McMansion, but I think that as McMansions, but I think that they are kind of their own echelon of, of just, they're, they're the kind of Trumpification of suburban houses. They go beyond just mere like bourgeois tastelessness into like new realms of really kind of sick and degraded, oozing, visible, conspicuous consumption. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Trump because as I was paging through your uh, site earlier, um, it made me think of the, the aesthetics of Donald Trump. Um, this is, uh, he, he does seem to emerge out of the, the same culture that produces a McMansion. I mean, people have said of Donald Trump that he is what a poor person's idea of what a rich person should be. Which I always, I always kind of had a hard time with that statement. I think that's a, personally, I think it's a little classist. But I would say that there are kind of material signifiers of wealth that are extremely simplified and basic. One of them is like bronze, gold, any kinds of like metals. Uh, another is like stone, columns, all of these things that are used in extremely important buildings like government buildings, 
schools or like colleges, uh, banks are a really big one. That's where sort of the foyer, the two-story foyer is a, is a, is a trope borrowed from uh, courthouses and banks. It's not really necessarily common on residential houses, even affluent ones, prior to probably, I would say, the 19th century. Uh, but even then, but our current conception of the two-story foyer is based off of commercial banks. Um, take, they take very similar forms, especially with the centrally placed staircase and chandelier and the materials, which are usually a marble floor. And sometimes it's the only marble floor in the entire house. Um, these are just basic and these are maybe subconscious. I mean, I don't necessarily think that people are intending their foyers to look like bank foyers, but there are these uh, signifiers of wealth that people identify with as, as having made it. That's why granite countertops are so are so popular. It's not because you know granite is particularly well suited to a countertop surface any more so than linoleum, any more so than formica, or any more so than any other kind of stone. The reason why granite is so highly coveted is because it takes greater amounts of labor to extract it from the earth, and therefore there is some kind of you know Burkean sublime quality to it because that labor is invoked even. And that's really the the big thing with chandeliers too, because back in the day, these these of course these signifiers, the signifying chain of these individual, you know, signifiers of wealth has been completely eradicated. I mean, the chandelier is a great example. Uh, back in the day, the chandelier was extremely decadent because it it took an army of of servants to get up on a ladder precariously, holding a flame to light each and every one each and every candle that was just a display of labor for the amusement of everybody else in the house to watch and for what to light this giant thing that hangs from the ceiling in a very treacherous way so there are kind of invocations of of previously laborious elements to to these kinds of architectures and for me what's so interesting about mcmansions is that these elements are completely devoid of their original context. Now, when you want to turn the chandelier on, it's just like flipping a switch, but we still find that to be some kind of sublime because you knew that back in the day it was an extreme luxury. These are not necessarily, you know, conscious decisions that people make in their head, but these are kind of cultural bodies that guide these principles of designing around some general idea of wealth. The McMansions, of course, are isolated and often quite deliberately isolated and remote from cities. What about that, uh, the social configuration of the McMansion? How does that compare with, you know, classic urban architecture? Well, McMansions are, are part of a larger effort amongst wealthy suburbanites to become more and more isolated from other people, essentially. Um, the reason, part of the reason is because, you know, you can build a larger house if land is cheaper because you have more money left over to actually do the building. And, Part of it is so that was an incentive in and of itself to move. If you move farther away, you could have a bigger house. That's not necessarily always the case because there's other elements of like building infrastructure for sewage and uh, or waste dis disposal, electricity, etc. That are more expensive. But for for a lot of people, it's actually just cheaper to buy a, to build a bigger house the further away you are. That kind of isolation is really interesting to me, though. But it's part of a larger 20th century. Uh, isolation of the suburbs, and which was, of course, heavily racialized. The the kind of setting of the suburbs, especially the exurbs, was was based off of the sort of federal housing authorities' uh, plan for great streets, uh, federal housing administration. 
their plan for the the FHA's plan for good streets, which had to be curvy and off of an arterial and you just deter, deter traffic. But it also deterred walkability. And that was not necessarily unintentional. You didn't want riffraff from the city coming into your perfect suburb. So you had to buff you had to have a buffer of an arterial road and a constantly winding street that that is pretty disorienting, basically to deter outsiders from somehow getting into this insular neighborhood. Of course, this was a racialized issue. The uh, other thing is, is so when the, with the McMansion, though, that kind of isolation is taken to new heights. And, and it's very much evident in the social structure of the house itself. In McMansions, often people get not only their own rooms, but rooms in front of those rooms. Some, like, for example, the master suite will often have kind of an, a, an area where like there's chairs and books or a fireplace or something like that. And it's to add a, even another buffer of isolation between one person and the rest of the house. But it's so funny about McMansions is that because they're so isolated, they try in and of themselves to be small towns. That's why you see in basements, you see rec rooms with pool tables and a full bar. It's like, yes, I would love to go downstairs and participate in a full bar. It's like, what do you do? Call your wife and be like, hey, I need you to play bartender. I'm lonely or something like that. I mean, there's really no reason to have a full bar in one's house with a full bar counter and a wall of liquor and whatnot. It's just I feel like it's it's almost a. A psychological uh, compensation for the the extreme isolation that being in these exurban areas uh, provokes. I think that the especially the ornate backyards, all of these these settings in the house for med for entertaining. But how many times do these people really entertain because it's such a burden to get to and from their house? That's really the kind of irony of it. There, these houses are designed with the maximum possible social interaction in mind. Which for some people is like, oh yeah, we're gonna have Thanksgiving here one day, and all my kids are gonna be grown, and then their kids are gonna be grown, and then their other kids will have like two families or something. I mean, it's just an absurdly large amount of the actual house is devoted to entertaining, which happens in most households not very often. And in the households, in the time in one's life where one entertains the most, which in my experience has been college, people are pretty much okay with just sitting in the kitchen and, and drinking beer in my, in my experience, they don't necessarily need their own rooms for entertaining with six TVs and like 10 pools or whatever. Uh, when people come to see you, they're happy to see you, not your stuff. That's always been my understanding. And that's what my parents always told me. And so these are just designed to impress more than anything. It, it's not so much about accommodating the social fabric of, of the outside coming in, but it's about dominating it. And it's about showing Anyone who happens to stop by, look at how much stuff I have. That's really what it's about. And when you think about it, that is extremely antisocial and also extremely American. <laughs> the mishmash of styles and materials that characterize the McMansion, uh, which you spent a lot of time uh, detailing on, on your blog, what, um, what does that say? Is it like they don't really know what they're doing or are they actually trying to say something by putting all these uh, different styles and materials together? I think it's just kind of accident. I think that it's not intentional. I don't think that they're being sly or ironic or in the kind of postmodern sense of, of these juxtaposition or, or exaggerations of these of these details. I really think that they just picked them out of a catalog. All they know is that this looks vaguely old. Vaguely old. So they want some sense of historicity or some sort of authority or heritage that they can cite with these um, uh, vulgar structures. I always think about what Jameson said about the pastiche. It's a vulgar historicity is what he says. It's it's even it's not even historicity. It's the complete breakdown of historicity. It's completely detaching these materials from their original context. 
and he he goes to talk about the the platonic idea of the simulacrum the perfect copy for which no original exists and this is a great example of that these houses are vaguely traditional they're even called in house plans traditional style houses with no tradition to speak of these houses didn't houses didn't look like this before this it is the copy for which no original exists and uh, finally uh, are we still producing these things or are they uh, did, did they burn out with the bubble and we're still producing them. We're not going to stop producing them until they stop being so culturally desirable. And we're not going to stop producing them until it, uh, it's no longer sustainable to live a car-centric lifestyle. I was Kate Wagner, keeper of the blog McMansion Hell, which you can find at McMansionHell.com. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Newtown by the Slits. Next, the far right. In late July, American Renaissance, of white supremacist organization, held its annual conference. Amran is led by Jared Taylor, a Yaley of preppy demeanor, who aspires to be the respectable face of American reaction. It's one of the few convocations of such ghouls that's open to the public, including press, and Donna Minkowitz went and wrote it up for the Political Research Associates magazine Public Eye. You can find it on the web at politicalresearch.org. Jared Taylor was born in Japan to Christian missionary parents and spent the first 16 years of his life there. He founded the journal American Renaissance in 1990 and the organization of the same name several years later. He not only believes that black people are genetically dumber than whites, but that people of African descent are actually grateful to hear this slander. He's also fiendishly anti-immigrant and believes that white people deserve their own homeland. He is, oddly enough, not an anti-Semite, but that doesn't stop anti-Semites from going to his conferences. Here's how American Renaissance, sounds like a fancier version of Make America Great Again, doesn't it, describes its mission. Quote, race is an important aspect of individual and group identity. Of all the fault lines that divide society, language, religion, class, ideology, it is the most prominent and divisive. Race and racial conflict are at the heart of some of the most serious challenges the Western world faces in the 21st century. The problems of race cannot be solved without adequate understanding. Attempts to gloss over the significance of race or even to deny its reality only make problems worse. Progress requires a study of all aspects of race, whether historical, cultural, or biological. This approach is known as race realism. Close quote. 
Donna Minkowitz, a Brooklyn-based writer whose work has appeared in Slate, Salon, The Nation, The New York Times Book Review, and The Village Voice, spent several days at the Amaran Conference. Here she is in the report. My first question, Donna, um, what's it like uh, for a pinko Jewish lesbian from New York to travel among a bunch of Nazis? I was really scared. I did a lot of things to uh, help make myself safer. I'm not sure I can talk about them, but uh, I'll say I was really, really scared, and I was happy once I got inside and I realized they were taking me as friendly. They were taking me as just another white person who they thought was favorably disposed towards them. And did they know anything about your proclivities, or did you keep that under wraps? Um, I kept it under wraps, although the um, the actual staffers from American Renaissance, a couple of them, had read my work. They want progressives of all kinds, including um, queer ones, to come write about them. They really, um, they really do want to do outreach to anybody who's white, which is something we really have to uh, watch for. And whether Jews are white is a controversial position in this group, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I was really afraid going there as a Jew. And my name was on my badge, you know, so it said Donna Minkowitz Press. So probably a lot of people got that I was a Jew, but some people may not have. But at this conference, unlike all the other uh, white nationalist conferences, Jews are officially welcome is the head of this conference, Jared Taylor, has decided to make this, uh, this event and his organization look forward-thinking by saying it's okay, Jews, Jews are white, so they can be part of our white greatness. So someone came up to me and asked if I was Jewish, and I said, yeah, and he was a, he was a fellow Jew, so, you know, great. He was a Jewish white supremacist and, you know, was happy that I, a fellow Jew, was there. I want to get back to the uh, the anti-Semitism question mm, a bit. Absolutely. But these guys uh, were on very good behavior, right? They wanted to uh, be seductive. Absolutely. Amran, they were not like flaming like neo-Nazis. They weren't doing salutes. They weren't looking like flaming neo-Nazis. Like two weeks later, which is when Charlottesville happened, many of them were going and looking like flaming neo-Nazis and chanting, uh, Jews will not replace us. Um, and on Twitter, I mean, I, I followed uh, the people who were tweeting from the conference. On Twitter, many of them were saying anti-Semitic things and uh, Nazi-supporting things. Um, but at this conference, they were on their best behavior. Famously, David Duke, who has attended in the past, uh, made an anti-Semitic remark from the audience back in, I think, 2006. And a Jewish attendee yelled, you know, you Nazi, and uh, he was he was heckled roundly. The Jew the Jewish guy was heckled roundly, but after that, they kind of made a tacit policy that you weren't supposed to say anything anti-Semitic while you were in the halls of the conference. Okay, this group: uh, Jared Taylor, the leader, uh, a Yale from my era, uh, and American Renaissance. Uh, tell us about him and them. Jared Taylor for a long time, has been part of the Council of Concerned Citizens, which is the reincarnation of the old white citizens' councils in the South, which uh, actually lots of mainstream public uh, politicians have been involved in in the past, like uh, Haley Barber and other Republicans, a couple of Democrats. 
um, just uh, very involved with mainstream politicians to influence policy in a racist direction. Jared went to Yale, um, as, as I did too, and uh, he advertises it all the time. He likes to make uh, white supremacy seem gentlemanly and patrician, so he uses his Yale alumni address for his, you know, his main American Renaissance Which address. might seem rather vulgar, actually. But he... Yes, right, right. But and he's he... not ashamed of it. No, no, and he, um, he has been a business consultant. He's written several books about, uh, I think, uh, business in Japan. I have not read him on uh, Japan, but I have read other people saying that he's sort of philo-Japanese, and he thinks perhaps some... Some Asians are even smarter than whites. So he, he does a whole uh, taxonomy of, of the races. And this organization, American Renaissance, uh, what's that about? American Renaissance was founded in 1994. Its mission is to make white supremacy seem legitimate and moderate. From the earliest days, they let Jews in, which was really different than all the other uh, white supremacist groups, you know, including the ones that have uh, more recently been founded, like Richard Spencer's group, the National Policy Institute, is officially anti-Semitic. Spencer and his deputies and the organization say things about how horrible Jews are all the time. Taylor, on the other hand, he is affiliated and good friends with lots of anti-Semites, and he invites them to speak at his conference, but they don't talk about the Jews when they're at his conference. Like, his very good friend and I think a big donor to American Renaissance, Sam Dixon, who has been a lawyer for the Klan. Um, he speaks at every American Renaissance conference and he gives the closing address. And uh, he has written for and been on the board of Holocaust denial groups. Just there were so many anti-Semites um, at the conference, but they were being on good behavior. And what is the goal of the conference? Uh, is it just the gathering of the like, or they're trying to lure people in as well, right? They try to lure people in, definitely. So white supremacist conferences, this is one of the two big ones all year. The other one is uh, Spencer's National Policy Institute, which actually will, uh, will meet in D.C. in a couple of weeks in November. They also are the only two white supremacist conferences that are open to the press, and apart from press, anyone can attend if they, you know, pay for registration. But other white supremacist conferences are much more secret. Um, you have to be vetted to go. It's hard to find out about them, and they don't let the press in. So this one, for years, Taylor has tried to do a big selling job with the press. Years ago, he did this whole radio effort before he was well-known to get, him, get himself booked as a speaker on Martin Luther King Day, and they said he was a speaker on race relations. And he, you know, they're like, oh, bring this guy. He can tell you about a whole different side of Martin Luther King. So he was booked on several uh, mainstream radio shows. Which just goes to show you how much this stuff infects the mainstream, whether they know it or not. So how do these people feel about Trump? Are they uh, energized by uh, having someone like him as president? They're definitely energized by having Trump as president. They feel mixed about Trump. Uh, one of them, I interviewed one guy who said, you know, he's, uh, he's the biggest ass in the history of this country. You know, but he voted for him because he thought he'd bring in anti-immigration stuff, which indeed he's been doing. 
some of them think, say that, you know, well, Trump is not, he's not a true believer, but, you know, he's, he's the best we've gotten so far. And they're really, really energized by his, uh, by his anti-immigrant stance. I would like to get back to um, what you were asking about the American Renaissance Conference as a, um, a time to recruit people. And uh, in fact, for um, a lot of activists who uh, are newly drawn to the white supremacist movement, Amran is one of the first places they go because it's one of the, the most tame ones. They'll go there and they won't see anyone dressed in a Nazi uniform. Um, they won't see anyone talking about Jews, so they won't have to worry, wow, am I really in league with those people who sent Jews to the ovens? I did see Confederate flag uh, decals. Um, I didn't see any Klan hoods. I mean, it was so weird. They do say explicitly racist things, um, but then they say these other things that are supposed to make them sound progressive, like... uh, we believe every, all peoples deserve self-determination and every race deserves its own, uh, its own country. So they try, to, they try to do this whole fake progressive thing and then they make comments from the stage like calling African Americans gorillas. Yeah, did they believe in you know, the separation of the races, that the, you know, each to his own, or do they have a real sense of a racial hierarchy? Well, it's both especially since a lot of them are so influenced by the, the fascist right in Europe, which talks about this, uh, oh, you know, it's not that we're against other races, it's just that we think everyone deserves their own, their own land. Um, that's the, um, the identitarian movement, because they're influenced, this, they're influenced by this, and they think it can win them sort of uh, progressive cred. Um, they use that language, like Greg Johnson who is the, um, the editor of uh, Countercurrents, which is kind of an intellectual white nationalist uh, journal online. He loves to say that um, all peoples, you know, all peoples have the right to self-determination and so on. But then if you go into some of his writing, uh, he actually says that, oh, he thinks there might have to be benevolent con- colonialism in Africa because... He thinks that Africans are not are actually not smart enough to manage their own affairs. So some benevolent whites uh, will have to come in and, out of the goodness of their hearts, manage them for them. The white man's burden. Yes. <laughs> it never goes away. Yes. I'm speaking with the writer Donna Minkowitz, who's been uh, covering uh, the far right. Okay, so what, what is really their driving passions? What's motivating them now? Well, to tell you the truth, I think that capitalism is motivating them a lot. I think they look around and they see that uh, even though um, many of them are middle class or upper middle class, um, they, um, they have trouble paying for health care. Despite trouble... the patrician uh, pretensions. Yes, despite the patrician, patre... <laughs> patrician pretensions. Uh, yes, many of them are having the same problems that everyone in America is having, paying for health care, much less uh, uh, having fulfilling work, um, being treated okay at their jobs, having some social supports that support um, their family or their own needs, being able to live in a place where there's any beauty or there's any nature. So they take all that 
and they decide that the reason that they don't have that stuff um, is not capitalism or the growth and inequality, but um, but the fact that we live in a in a multiracial society. They've decided that, like, oh, the problem, what's sucking away the beauty and riches that should be theirs is people of color who they think are not as smart as white people. And therefore, if just the people of color could be removed, then they, the white people, the white supremacists, would have all these amazing benefits. And they also sort of have dreams in which their fascist ethnostate, their white fascist ethnostate, will somehow confer all these these wonderful things that are really lacking today, like um, beauty and meaningful work and strong relationships and, you know, supportive community. I think they're really crazy to believe um, that a white ethnostate would accord them those things. Yeah, they're, they're kind of vague on the mechanisms of how that would happen, aren't they? They are vague. Many of them think that... Uh, Things are at such a bad state now with U.S. society that some cataclysmic event will happen and the state will wither away. Um, some of them, uh, some of them are working toward a, toward a violent uh, white fascist revolution. Um, but the mechanism for how society would be just and beautiful, especially when they expel all the people of color, they don't let uh, they don't let women or gay people vote and they force women to have children. Uh, anyway, no, I can't see that mechanism. And then also, they are fascists. So while they put out some points that sound left-wing economically, like Richard Spencer says he supports uh, single-payer health care, and uh, Greg Johnson says he supports um, guaranteed minimum income and the labor movement, they say things like this, but... They don't want a democratically run society. They say that only white men who have demonstrated, according to them, um, intelligence and stability uh, and have fathered several legitimate white children should be allowed to vote. So I'm sure it would not be any kind of socialist paradise. Um, What, about 10% of the attendees were women? You said? Yeah, about 10%. So there were 300 people overall, probably about 30 women. And how do they take to this being disenfranchised? That was interesting. I did not see a single woman speaking up about uh, the idea of being disenfranchised when it was spoken spoken about and championed from the stage. I did hear two women in front of me when um, Sam Dixon, the, the Klan lawyer, was uh, uh, was speaking about how um, there should be incentives for white women to have children, to have lots of children, and they should only be allowed to wear certain kinds of clothing if they had produced several legitimate white babies, which was horrible and ridiculous and, and chilling. So this older woman in front of me, who I had interviewed, who's uh, sort of a middle-aged nurse, Um, She spoke to a young woman sitting next to her, and she said, do you think this would work on you? And the young woman said, no. And whiteness, uh, how do they define that? Uh, You know, my ancestry is Irish and Italian. Am I white by their measure? Um, We've already talked some about your whiteness being Jewish. That's a really good question about whether you or I are white. 
In fact, a lot of the uh, leading activists in the white nationalists now, um, in the white nationalist movement now, seem to be Irish American. There are some Italian Americans as well, and you know, different folks. But in fact, at the conference, a British-born speaker made a gross joke about how the Irish are uh, are stupid was it Derbyshire? and licentious. Yes, it was yeah. Derbyshire. And uh, their leading eugenicist speaker, Helmut Nyborg, who's a, um, a Danish uh, psychologist, he gave this whole ranking um, of intelligence and uh, civilizability where he said that uh, his science showed that um, Irish and Southern Europeans, including Italians, were less, were far less intelligent and, you know, capable of high culture and civilization than those other uh, more northern white people. But Irish are in the north, but they don't count. Yes, I know. They don't count. They're just, uh, they're, they're backward. Um, yeah, he also said that the, um, the Inuit, he had to find some reason because he was arguing that, um, you know, living in cold northern countries somehow made people smarter and uh, able to produce high art more so he's oh, but not the Inuit. Look, um, I think because he's identifying the Inuit as non-white, he had to say that they weren't as smart or, or artistic. So he said, oh, look, there must be some reason. Oh, the Inuit, they're not as smart, even though they're northern, because um, there wasn't as much food up there, and um, they lived in sparsely populated areas, so they, they had more interbreeding. Um, so it's oh, oh, and then he goes. He has to find a reason why um, uh, he believes that um, there was high art and civilization in ancient Greece and Rome and and Egypt. Um, so he says, like, oh, it must not have been those native Greek and Roman and Egyptian people who did all that beautiful architecture and art. It must be that some. Um, more northern Europeans immigrated there, and they established the the high cultures of Greece and Rome and Egypt. So it's it's just he's just trying to find excuses for saying that people from the north, except the Irish and the Inuit, are smarter and better than everybody else. Yeah, and of course the fact that humans probably originated in Africa and then dispersed around the world from there um, that really doesn't enter into their um, their theorizing. No, he does admit that we all. We all came from Africa, but then he, uh, and no, he thinks that um, then the people, the, some of the people he, who went to the north became better than everyone else. Well, he's got the theory of sunlight too, right? Exactly, yes. It sounds like a conspiracy theory. He calls it the, um, I think he calls it the thermal, ra- thermal irradiance, the solar thermal irradiance hypothesis. <laughs> Yes, dealing with the dealing with the, the the lack of sunlight, he thinks made northern European people just more wonderful, and and he even says altruistic um, and more inclined to democracy than than everybody else. Some of this sounds like you know, in content like Alex Jones, although the form is trying to be like a Yale seminar room. Um, how, how do they reconcile these? incredibly primitive ideas with their attempt to be um, intellectual and patrician? That's a really good question. They seem to really like to to throw around intellectual patrician labels. 
not that many of them have fancy college backgrounds, but the ones who do, they, they always note it, which is another way of giving them legitimacy. I would say they didn't try to reconcile it. There were also um, something I didn't have room to put in the article. They kept coming up with these sort of uh, conspiracy theories about Muslims raping women in horrible ways. And I left, I left the banquet right before the end, but I understand that I missed a, uh, a documentary that was shown about, about some poor woman who, who supposedly was, was raped by gazillions of, of Muslims. And this shows why Muslims as a whole are terrible. Um, but there was lots of reference to, to rape, this real fear. Um, the, um, the nurse I spoke about, um, Joan Harris uh, was her name. She came up to me and also it's like, I mean, I mean, I think she thought that I, because I was from the media, you know, probably was progressive, which, you know, anyway, it's true. I am progressive. And she's like, how do you, how do you reconcile, you know, how do you reconcile these horrible rapes? You know, do you support them? And I was like, no, I don't support, I don't support anyone being raped. I think rape is terrible. So I think there is a lot of, uh, of fear mongering. Um, and in fact, uh, the white nationalist uh, Twitter accounts that I uh, keep in touch with, that I keep tabs on, um, they are constantly posting these memes about terrible violence that they're claiming Muslims and also African Americans and also Latinos are are doing. And uh, a speaker at the conference, uh, he was going off about uh, Latinos specializing in the rape of children. So yeah, there was a lot of conspiracy theories and fear-mongering. I'm speaking to the writer Donna Minkowitz, who's been uh, covering uh, the far right. Now, Islam seems to have taken the place of Judaism in, in a lot of the imagination of these, these the far right. It's like that they, a lot of the you know, classic tropes of anti-Semitism have been somehow transferred onto, onto Muslims, like they're, they're the bad other or something. But I think that's true. And at, at the same time, the anti-Semitism remains as well. well it keeps it's popping just, up. <laughs> yes. It's just that in this country, in this country uh, Islamophobia is somehow more okay than anti-Semitism. Like, you'll find Republican uh, senators and congresspeople openly giving vent to Islamophobia, but they are not, not yet, openly giving vent to anti-Semitism. Islamophobia, I think in their minds, helps make them look more moderate. But there is a lot of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism seems very crucial to a lot of the right-wing thought. The, the rootless cosmopolitan you know, idea is, is something that disturbs a real uh, nationalist. Definitely. And um, also the white nationalists who do talk about economic inequality, and they, there definitely are some of them, they, just, they take a critique of capitalism and they blame it all on the Jews. They're like, oh, you know, bankers, you know, the 1%, Top earners, oh, they're Jews, and so they take um, they take and they try to harness people's anger at capitalism and 
and try to direct it against the Jews, you know, which I know has been done for a long time, but it seems particularly frightening now. Um, I don't know if you know um, the left forum, um, the one that was just passed. The first one I hadn't been to in decades, I think. The left forum somehow scheduled four panels that had anti-Semites or Holocaust deniers on them. And it took the action of a, an activist named Spencer Sunshine, who, um, uh, who had been on staff at the Left Forum um, in the past. Spencer went to them and said, like, hey, you're having these people talk at your Left conference, and you know, look at these things they write about Jews and the Holocaust. And so three of the panels were ultimately canceled. One of them remained, but it's hideous that um, the left is making itself open to anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic speakers. It's as though parts of the left somehow have bought the line that anti-Zionism is the same as anti-Semitism. So they think if someone criticizes Jews, it's, you know, it's fine. Oh, they just meant it. They just meant it about the Israeli state. Um, so I, I find that very concerning. Oh, God, yes. Um, so how worried should we be about these people? Are they just you know, a bunch of small group of weirdos who have conferences that uh, the outer world shouldn't worry about too much, or should we be scared of them? I think we should be really scared of these people. One reason is um, there's a lot of them in the tech industry. You know, I'm sure you heard about the guy who, uh, who wrote the memo at Google about um, how he was so sick of all this uh, diversity training. And he has ultimately, you know, openly joined uh, the alt-right, if I'm not mistaken. There's many, many people in the tech industry who are openly affiliated with the alt-right, which means that they have access to some money and power. And of course, um, Peter Thiel, um, who is a, a big uh, tech industry player, is part of the alt-right. Um, he wants to disenfranchise women, doesn't he? Yes, he wants to disenfranchise women. That goes along with some of their pseudoscience, the idea that, um, that women are not smart or rational enough to vote. Too emotional. Yes, yes. <laughs> because men, men are not Yes, because men obviously have, have no emotions Cool and at all. rational entirely. Yes, so that, you know, that concerns me. And then also, you know, just the, the number of people who voted for Trump and therefore were, were open to some of these racist ideas, which Trump cleverly also cast in some, some sort of left economic terms, like, you know, Trump's uh, anti-globalist, anti-trade language and language about how he was going to get uh, the bankers and Wall Street, and many of these white voters didn't look uh, beyond that to how how he was supposedly going to get these bankers. No, he's in it, an administration full of Goldman Sachs alums, though. Yeah, yeah, right. And I think, unfortunately, unless the left really finds a way to talk to people without judgment on a grassroots level... You know, many of those people could be attracted to the alt-right, too. To close, um, how, do, how do we fight this? I mean, you, you cite Jefferson Cowie's observation that uh, the working class is full of all kinds of uh, thinking that we might not find always very attractive. How do we deal with that? How do we, and then how do we fight the, um, the, the lure of, uh, of this kind of white nationalist nonsense? 
I think an important way is to um, to do a lot of education on the local level um, about how race is connected to class, which lots of people, even really good activists who've been fighting on specific issues for a long time, a lot of people don't get just about what the history of slavery in this country has done economically, you know, and why, for example, um, white people, even ones who are not that well off, you know, we have a lot more access to, um, to wealth, to capital. You know, it's something we, you know, we might have inherited a, a house from our parents or something over certain generations that um, African Americans and other people of color may not, and how this plays in. And we will continue to be divided like this unless a model that I am interested in is one that my, uh, my humanist congregation in Brooklyn uses, the Brooklyn Society for Ethical Culture. We have um, a group of people of all races that calls themselves Lucy's Children after the, um, the oldest human ancestor who's been identified in Africa, the, uh, the fossil who's been named Lucy. And they have a way of talking and bringing people together to talk about race um, honestly and without judgment, but communicating across different experiences that I think is really useful and should be replicated nationally. That was Donna Minkowitz. You can find her article in the American Renaissance Conference on the website of Political Research Associates at politicalresearch.org. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, why not, some more St. Vincent, this birth in reverse from a few years ago. Till next week, bye. In the